Hi, I'm Rich Wynn. And I'm Rebecca Nixon. And this is the PropTech Growth Podcast. Every episode, we interview an expert in the PropTech startup space, gathering their advice and expertise to help you run a successful PropTech business. I'm the portable PropTech CMO, and I help PropTech startups build and scale their commercial growth strategy. I'm Rich from Richwin Consultancy. I specialize in operations, sales, and process, helping fintechs and PropTech companies to grow. Today's episode is sponsored by Inventory Base, a unique cloud and mobile application for scheduling, producing, and managing professional property inventory and inspection reports. Inventory Base is used by thousands of property professionals across the UK and worldwide. With unmatched round-the-clock support and free updates for life, that's why it's become the number one reporting solution for property inventory clerks and letting agents across the UK. Today with us on the PropTech Growth Podcast, we have Jimmy Armitage. Jimmy is a longtime friend of mine. He runs an incredibly interesting recruitment company. I think it's worth having him on to get the perspective of a different business, but how a B2B model has worked and how a disruptive force within recruitment has made big difference to that particular industry. Give us an overview of what you do and Wavelength and how you got there. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Rich. I'm one of the two co-founders of Wavelength. We started it back in February 2015, just born out of the frustration, really. We tried all of the conventional methods, bringing an in-house recruiter, going to the big names that were established in the 80s that you've all heard of and maybe even used the local market the specialists and fundamentally just didn't enjoy the experience throughout consistently with all of them we had some successes but consistently wasn't great and ultimately the problem isn't being addressed it came to the point of view that the system is broken and we decided to do something about it and that problem as all of your clients will no doubt go through is how do i build the team at scale to match the growth of my business that can go and deliver our mission or our vision or our purpose, depending on what language you use. And the common traditional way of doing that does not work. The numbers don't stack up, the success doesn't stack up. And so we started out on a journey nearly eight years ago, just trying to understand what the factors are that affect somebody performing in a role, but then also making that wider to how do you recruit as an organization? And ultimately where we are today is that we work as the outsourced recruitment team for our clients what did you find were the biggest challenges when it came to growth within your sector because as you said some big companies in there have been around since the 80s specifically people's perception in our case our end client employers perception of what recruitment is and i'm sure there's lots of parallels with what you guys do with your clients so when you're trying to disrupt something and somebody says are oh, you in recruitment they go oh yeah i know what you mean then and you go well you probably don't but you've got to fight that idea that's already in their head. And one of the very good things that recruiters have done a very good job of is hammering the message that you have to be an industry specialist in each industry and see these are the way to go. And the numbers don't bear that out. Biggest challenge I would say is trying to get somebody to a position where they can understand what the problem really is and then judge for themselves, but also understanding that it's probably not their number one priority until it is. And at the point with recruitment where it's your number one priority, it's usually because you have sold enough business and haven't got the people to deliver it, 
all the key people that were delivering it have left for whatever reason and you are now in the hole. I would say that would be the number one thing that springs to mind. Is that a sort of, does that ring true to yourself, Rich, Rebecca? Yeah, definitely. I think that yeah, it makes complete sense. And I think it's one thing having a product or a service that can do something that nobody else can do, but you have to convince and you have to get people to actually adopt it and understand it, educate them in order for it to work. Let's say five years ago, if someone said marketing to me, I would just think oh, they put stuff on Facebook or LinkedIn or whatever. It is pretty much that. It's not hard, is it, Rebecca? Now, at that point, I'll move over to Rebecca from your perspective. Yeah. Well, funnily enough, I worked in recruitment in a past life for a number of years. I worked for a couple of different recruitment companies under S3 and Vault, which are some of the bigger ones, quite well established, particularly over in the States. And Really, the B2B proposition being delivered in a really effective way is something that's quite difficult to get right. And I think one of the biggest challenges I had to overcome in that environment was the impression that marketing exists to make things look pretty and post things on social media. In fact, one of my biggest and most successful projects was overhauling how can I put this in a way where I don't divulge <laughs> data that I'm not supposed to essentially there was an advertising channel at one of these businesses that was being managed by salespeople, and they were under the impression that it was highly effective and so they were pouring huge amounts of money into that advertising channel I had identified a different channel that was far more efficient and almost free. It was so cheap. And getting them to see that was even within my remit to raise as an issue, let alone actually pay attention to and implement my strategy was really very challenging. It was very difficult to be taken seriously. And I think that really speaks to what you said, James. People have a picture in their mind of what a certain role or functional business does and part of what we need to do is overcome that really excellent recruitment is beyond valuable team makes a company particularly in the sorts of businesses that we are speaking to today which will be prop tech startups they're mostly going to be relatively small businesses they can have less than 50 probably even less than 10 employees and each of those employees is going to have a really key role to play. And if a few of those or even one of those isn't the right fit, the cost to the business in terms of time, energy, runaway is going to be really significant. And I'd love to hear more from you, James, about how you make that value proposition from a recruitment perspective, because I'm coming at this from the perspective of somebody who knows the traditional role of recruitment. Yes, and I think you'd also be... Possibly without realising it, you might even bring more value to thinking about recruitment in today's age with your marketing skills than anything. Hey, why do you say that? So we split getting recruitment into four sort of broad areas, if you like. So you've got appeal. So that really is the appeal of the role itself. So can you define what it is? Why are they coming in to do it? Is it an attractive role to do? Is the salary right? There are enough people that meet the essential criteria that you're saying, or we just made up some crazy criteria and there just isn't the talent pool to do that. And I dare say in the world of fast growing startups, it'd be like, ah, oh, it'd be brilliant if we could get like a chief technology officer, but also knew a little bit about marketing 
And if they could just have a little bit of experience with legals, we would be flying and we can pay them 40K. And good luck with that. That genuinely happens a lot. Appeal, so think of that one box. If the role's not right and it doesn't appeal to people, we're struggling. The next bit is perception. And what we really mean there is around your organization. So it touches on employer brand, but it touches on all sorts of other things, right? So again, with your marketing cap on, all of the technology that's available to candidates to check you out before they ever apply for your job, they can check out publicized funding, what your accounts are like, what your website looks like, your LinkedIn activity, your Glassdoor scores, anything you've done on Indeed. They can even contact existing members of staff and people who've left on LinkedIn before they speak to you and ask them questions. Then you've got your reach, which you know inside out, Rebecca. So what channels are the right channels? And I don't just mean online channels. I mean, it might be that you just go to an event where there are a lot of these people start chatting. If you're a startup, that might be a really good option. So not relevant for tech, but for someone who's looking for carers and they're using a load of LinkedIn advertising. I mean, like, how many carers are on LinkedIn? Yeah. Probably not that many, but if you try it on Instagram, you probably get a lot more joy. It's mm. a really obvious one, but just picking the right channel and then mm. how many people can see it. So just like what you touched on again, Rebecca, on analyzing the channel people think is really worthwhile and going, hang on a minute, guys, we're nearly printing money on this one. This is where we should be. And then lastly, but by no means leastly, is process. So if you don't have a recruitment process that keeps candidates engaged all the way through, helps you identify who the right people are, then everything else is pointless. What I find so striking about what you've just explained is those are the sorts of strategic thoughts that I would be pushing a founder to explore when talking about their own customers and their journey. And I do wonder how many people working in the prop tech space have invested huge amounts of time and energy in their customer onboarding and their customer experience and their own brand reach, but aren't necessarily doing that for their recruitment processes. The companies that I work with, the ones that succeed are the ones that recognize where their gaps are and look to fill them with clever, capable, driven people. They're not the ones that always have the best branding or even the best product. Those things are important, but really key to the success of a business is getting the right people and having the really humble, teachable attitude that it takes to be pushed in the right direction. You talked about making sure that something as simple as a job description actually has a market fit. That's product market fit right there. It's making sure that the product you're offering, which is a job, has a market that fits to it and that you have an appropriate price point available. Do you think that businesses are becoming a bit more savvy in that area or do you think that there's still a really big gap between their expectations and the reality of getting someone in to fill a role good question so i think the market is forcing people to have a look so i've got a few thoughts on this if i could just throw them out there one the market's forcing people to have to look and i think a parallel that we can really draw and look back on because it's always difficult to predict the future but if we have a look at Companies going online, PropTech being key. Is it 15, 20 years ago where companies going, well, I know the internet's kicking off, but we're doing very well. I don't think we really need to invest in it. Where are they now? You're going to get left behind. The positive spin on that is there's a very high chance that your competition, if you're a PropTech company listening to this, are not doing this. 
the odds are that you probably can't afford to pay the most wages but with a bit of effort and a bit of thought you can get the people you want and ultimately that's how you amplify your efforts isn't it by understanding that you've got a team of people who are better at things than you are and you work collectively and you go and grow the team but that doesn't happen by accident mm. and you can probably get away without putting a load of effort in it if you can write blank checks but unless you're the top player in your industry which is one company everyone else can't do that so a job ad the other day that was for a prop tech marketing manager and it was for 30 grand and I read the job description and it was really for somebody very experienced, like they wanted someone with at least five years experience and who knew how to use all of these different platforms and knew how to build a marketing strategy and a content strategy. And I'm looking at this and I'm thinking 10 years ago, I was getting paid 10 to 15 grand more for this role that I was doing at that stage in my career. And this company has absolutely no clue at all. And they're pitching this, oh, yeah, we're so great. This is an awesome company to work for. You're going to be so happy here. This is such an incredible opportunity. And I'm thinking, this is not going to attract anyone with that level of skill and experience. Not going to work for that kind of money. People have bills to pay and mortgages to pay. And it's just completely unrealistic. I'm wondering from you, what do you do when you encounter somebody who has these really high expectations for a candidate, but on their end, then just not willing to fork out the cash? We first of all, start really simply with two, two questions, which for most people can get them to readjust their idea. So the first two simple questions are how many people meet that essential criteria in the location where you need them? And the usual answer from people like you've just described is, I have no idea. And you go, mm. oh, of those people that meet that criteria, what do they get paid on average? I have no idea. So why have you got a fixed mindset that you should be able to get somebody who will do this job for that money when you've just told me you have no idea how many people meet it and what they get paid? What we tend to do with our clients is we come in much earlier in terms of the role design. So that's the first step. We can support that with salary benchmarking we go look you're not even in the lowest 10 percent you're in like the lowest two percent of people paying i've been having conversations with somebody who's canada to send them one hundred twenty thousand pounds for a position and they're offering 85 and it's consistent and you go the whole world's not changing for you we have so this is a bit of a free tool that people can use which is pretty valuable so we call it the telescope and the microscope and the telescope is when you come to design a role which is three basic levels of question why are you bringing this person into your organization. What do you actually want to achieve by bringing them in? Next level down, what do you expect success to be in the first 12 months? One is good for clarifying what they need. It's also really good at checking for realistic expectations. So if I'm the founder of a prop tech business and I'm bringing a sales director in, and my expectation is in the first 12 months, they are gonna get from zero revenue to 4 million revenue, with no sales team, no marketing budget, and nothing else, <laughs> we should have a look at redesigning this role. <laughs> once you've done that, that second level, we drop right down to detail level, which is, so what are the key activities or tasks or weekly habits that this role needs in order to deliver that year's success? The reason we call it telescope is looking out of your business, 
where are you trying to get to? And then the microscope is where you bring in the more traditional things that you've seen. So what capabilities do they need? What natural abilities? What experience? What qualifications? What skills must they possess from day one to get this job? As in, if they don't have these, we're not prepared to review them. Not what you want, because that comes later, but essential. You couldn't do this job if you did not have this. And we've got some tools where you show them like just how their talent pool can be affected by putting in non-essential things in there. If you don't do it day in, day out, you don't understand the consequences of just adding that one extra bullet point. One extra bullet points removed 90% of the candidates. First four jobs I had here in the UK, showing my age a little bit, but every single one of them required a university degree. I don't have one. I learned on the job practical hands-on stuff and I'm quite proud of that fact because actually it means that everything I've learned is really practical and really has been proven it's been tested by fire in the business but if I had been excluded from certain job opportunities on that basis which I was thankfully I just <laughs> went ahead and applied anyway but a lot of people don't know how to do that and shouldn't have to do that they should be able to still be included in the talent pool and then are excluded on the basis of sort of rudimentary things or assumed things that somebody running a business just thinks they should have this they should have this skill or they should have this knowledge or experience when in practical terms it may not be required at all how do you go about steering that because as a recruiter i would assume that you have a lot of in-depth knowledge on what skills and experience actually are required for roles. And I think people running businesses have very strong ideas about what they think a role needs. And any challenge you're facing when it's involving people is the answer's a bit of empathy. Why are they doing that? Not they're wrong, which I, I believe there are better ways to do it, but ultimately, usually where it stems from is I am incredibly busy. I really want to get this right. I don't have time to meet a lot of people who aren't right. Mm -hmm. If I set the bar high enough, then I'll be right. And usually what ends up happening is going, you're not wrong. What you've proposed here is if people meet these criteria, there's a very good chance they could do the job. But what we're saying is that might only be 5% of the total people who could do that job really well. So it's what are you actually asking for? I want to make sure they're clear, concise. Why don't we put in a test or a process? to assess that. There's a lot of red herrings, as there are in all industries. In this one, it's job titles, because you could pick up the same job title in 10 organizations with 10 wildly different salaries, 10 wildly different responsibilities. That's probably the last thing I'd worry about. The key thing is, what do you need? Who do you need? What are you trying to achieve? And if we can't get that for our budget, could we get two lower skilled people who do half of that job each less so it definitely suits startups and people who are prepared to look beyond convention i've been lucky enough to recruit when i have my fintech and other companies through uh, james and his process and the way that he worked was by far the best they were good we got on well and you don't make it eight years in business without knowing what you're doing, especially within the same business. This is why I wanted to get him on the podcast because I've learned a lot and can take a lot of what he said. I really like the telescope microscope thing. And a lot of what he's saying is 
relevant to products and relevant to the prop tech sector there is so much there that you could learn from what he's just said and i think that also fits into our particular roles in, as a consultant rebecca that mm. when we're pitching people are looking for a set thing but we have to mold them into well, actually where well, you think you need that but actually this is what you need and here are your pain points this is what we can do to get rid of those pain points and james is doing exactly the same thing for recruitment i think when it comes to scaling up obviously i did that with the fintech and it, it does happen quickly and it is hard when you're busy to write the correct job role and obviously how you break it down and how you show it to people scaling up is so difficult and when you get investment vc or however you need to know what money you need to put aside you can't just say you're 200 grand for staff or whatever because you don't know that you don't know what staff you're going to need even if it's just bringing in-house developers rather than outsourcing them it's so important that those people are going to get on it is so important to to have that how did you find it with a co-founder because we've had different opinions as to you go it yourself or if it's better to do it as a two or a three or a four what's your take on it my personal thing is I wouldn't do it any other way. Don't get me wrong, we have our first share of ding-dongs. As, it's basically a work marriage. On a bad day, you can have a work marriage malfunction and then a home marriage malfunction and you're like walking the dog. I'll give you some context. As you well know, Rich, we met through playing rugby union, team sport, love it. But you, you're trained to understand that you have different strengths and weaknesses. I'm taking me and you as examples. I can't run over two miles an hour but I'm good at running into things. You always used to run past me. It becomes quite obvious that you're quicker at running and I'm not very quick at running. And you can just carry that through to business. So you, you understand you've got different strengths and weaknesses and you embrace that. It's cool because your weaknesses are covered. The other thing is we worked together in two previous businesses. So I have worked with Kim Farrell, our business partner, who is in fact a man, but called Kim Farrell. So quite often gets the Miss Kim Farrell. It is a mister. Uh, I can confirm to the world. But because we've worked together for so long, we know each other like inside out. We can finish each other's sentences. He'll probably laugh if he listens to this. I'm one of those annoying people that like tests psychometrics. So I use those as guinea pigs for our clients to see if any of them are any good. We'll every few months get bothered by me with some sort of test he has to sit and he <laughs> tolerates it. He doesn't like any of them. He thinks they're all horoscopes. And annoyingly, he's usually right. We've got a pretty similar IQ level. We've got pretty similar communication styles. It works really well. And what I would say is we've had plenty of tough times in the eight years, and I'm sure we'll have plenty more. Not being in the canoe by yourself when your paddle disappears is a big thing. And if you've got a good relationship, if all else fails, you can go down the pub, join your sorrows for a day, and then get on with it which is pretty much how we took COVID on. As a B2B business yourself, what is your overall growth strategy? How do you go about growing your business? Yeah, the hardest thing I think in business, for me personally, is communicating effectively. And that's something that we need to do a lot more of. We're very guilty of, uh, what's the analogy, the builder's house or whatever, where we're, uh, you advise clients on everything else for them, but you don't do it for yourself. Uh, amazingly, the vast majority of our work over the last eight years, even with some of the massive, we work like the second private largest client on the planet, second largest private employer on the planet, some massive blue chip companies, as well as much smaller startups through word of mouth and doing a great job. But to hit our targets for the 10-year plan, we massively need to up our game in terms of 
identifying who the right businesses are. For us personally, the size of businesses that we're looking at, tenders and bids are pretty useful for us in that regard because of the all-encompassing nature of what we can do and how different it is. Mm. We can ask a lot of questions and go, well, how are you addressing this and this with what you're currently doing? You need a robust growth strategy that also encompasses sort of an RFX process as well. You could explain what an RFX process is. Uh, Enterprise organisations usually have an RFX, an RFI, request for information, request for proposal, and the procurement of a large organisation will have a team of people whose job it is to procure goods and services, and they will have a process and a procedure that they go through, which is often a list of quite in-depth and complex questions. And they'll want to know if your ISO certified and what your security standards are like and all sorts of different things. And having a process in place for managing that can be hugely valuable in speeding up the sales process because with those organisations, you're looking at 18 months to two years to turn around a contract. So when I worked in another recruitment company in the past, we had one person whose full-time job it was to do RFX. Now, this was quite some time ago, and I can imagine that today that could be streamlined quite efficiently, but knowing what is expected on your side as the provider could be extremely helpful to you for those bids and tenders. Yeah, it's a very good shout and something that we've done, but used many different portals. So actually there's not been a lot of standardization. And yet the timelines that you're talking about is pretty much what we're seeing on some of the organisation sizes that we're in with. But from our point of view, the clients you were describing earlier on, Rich, whilst they won't have anywhere near the volume of the ones that we're talking, and commercially aren't as significant on paper, they are proving what we're talking about. One of the key reasons people get it wrong is they've started aiming at the wrong target. And so it's refreshing when we have clients who come in and go, I don't know. How would you do it? Oh, great. We could do it like this. You could do it like that. We had a conversation like this on Friday afternoon with a client who wanted an operations director in a certain part of the country. And they want to pay 50 to 60,000 pounds for it. And the average is currently 82,000 pounds. And it's not that you can't have it, but you might be looking for an outstanding performer whose first step into directorship is this role. If you think you're bringing in someone who's polished with a six year career history in it they're already earning 80 85 so they're not taking you 50 to 60. yeah the contractor you need someone two days a week because if you can't afford somebody full-time at say a six-figure expectation then your business probably isn't big enough to justify that anyway and actually you probably just need someone who's very capable one to two days a week to come in streamline your operation somebody like rich for example who can just make it happen over a short period of time then getting somebody in full time and just try and turn it around on a more of a project basis until you're at the stage where you can hire a full-time head of department i find so often the companies that I'm talking to, particularly startups, right? They're startups, they're a bit bootstrapped. They want to get somebody in on the cheap or in exchange for share options or something. And the reality is they're going to be far better off getting a contractor. I think we've seen this in the finance side of things for a very long time. It's not unusual for an FD to work 
a day a week or even a day or two a month and they have a portfolio of companies that they serve with their skills and experience do you find that you are seeing more flexible job share contractor part-time roles knocking about the place yeah definitely again weirdly you say that because on friday we had exactly the same conversation but around being a sales director for a scale-up who just don't have the volume of work mm. and i think in their head they were hoping for a person to come in with all the experience in the world but will also go do all the doing but the oh, reality yeah, a lot yeah <laughs> years of a career doing the doing and they've had enough doing the doing they're in the strategy and they'll do the top line the big client meets but they're not coming in to roll their sleeves up and do really menial work maybe in their eyes because mm -hmm. they've earned the right not to and no one's bad in that scenario so we actually referred them to somebody we know that does the outsourced sales stuff nothing to do with us there's no benefit to us apart from they're good i think you should go with that option the other thing i use rich for an example and what we've done when we've referred other professionals is they're also incredibly good at sitting in on the interview stage. So if you are a founder, you know what you're trying to do, but you might not necessarily have the expertise. How do you pick an FD? How do you pick a sales director? Now you can go through all the processes you want, but if it's a really crucial role, sometimes one of the things that we suggest and we can set up for people, but all they can go through their own networks is, do you have somebody that you could get and pay a day rate for them to sit for the day and interview the last three candidates that are coming through for this? So they could go, I am not buying what they were selling. That does not make any sense to me. I'm worried about this and this. Because it's incredibly difficult when you're not an expert in those fields to really understand. And sometimes you can go off personality or who's the most confident. It's really funny that you would mention that, actually, because I've seen that happen a lot. I've spoken to a lot of startups that are looking to find someone as like a mid-tier marketing manager because they can't afford someone higher up. And they think that a mid-tier is suited for them. I'm like, awesome, that's great. But how do you know that you're going to get the right person here? And I'm not saying that, for, obviously, I'm like, hire me for a day rate because I can do that. But out of genuine concern for these startups, I've seen so many hiring decisions made off the back of, oh, they had a good personality. They talked a good talk. I'm not going to name any names, but I remember helping a startup hire somebody into a marketing role. And for whatever reason, the founder didn't involve me in the first round or two of interviews because that person felt they were confident enough to do it themselves. And then we got to this next round of interviews and they got me involved and I'm talking to these candidates and I'm like, they're saying things that to a founder would sound really good, but I'm interrogating some of the things that they're saying they're saying that they've got experience working with this system or that system and so i'll ask a question like oh such and such a system had a really interesting round of updates recently which changed this functionality to this what do you think of that and they're like oh i don't it wasn't really me who did it it was someone else on the team and all of a sudden you start to not interrogate that's too harsh i really love candidates and i love talking to them but you are told to put your best foot forward in a job interview. And sometimes people 
out of a desire to look good will gloss over the areas that they don't have enough experience in and then when the rubber hits the road they're left in a really uncomfortable position and then so is the founder and at that point it's too hard to replace them so I think an advisor service from somebody who's in the same role but more senior could be a really valuable thing that recruiters could potentially start to offer people who are looking to hire. Yeah, it just makes sense. And it's a way of protecting yourself as a founder. To your point, maybe it is interrogation, but the meanest thing you can do to somebody is put them in the wrong job because it's mm-hmm. horrendous. When you are worrying about Monday on Saturday morning, it's not a good place to be. So actually, if the role's not suited, irrespective of somebody coming to an interview, it needs to be flushed out. One of the things that we do when we're first understanding the role is we ask if it's the role you've recruited before. If you are recruiting your 58th telesales person for your organization or 17th HR business partner, 50th software developer, you've got a process, you understand what you're doing, you've got a bit more knowledge. It's a totally different scenario when you're hiring a role you've never hired before in that organization. That's where I think a few people could trip themselves up. They might go and ask their friend who recruits a lot and go, how do you do it? And they'll give you, this is what we do for recruiting the 51st software developer. And you go, great. Just going to go and hire this CTO using this, but I don't know what any of the terminology is. I don't even know what the problems are that they're fixing for me. Best thing you can say, do you want that or do you want this? Do you want that or do you want this? Do you want that? Or this? We can just get there. It's when people are like, yeah, and I've got it. And then when you go, which one of these? We think these are the three best. Do you agree? I'm not sure. I'm sure you both had your fair share of, do you remember three months ago when we were in the meeting and we said, should we do this or this? And I highly advise you to do this. And you said, absolutely not, no chance. We're doing that now, aren't we? Great. Okay. (laughs) It does happen. It does. One of the things I love most about the founders that I work with is they are humble and teachable and they know that there's a lot that they don't know. And that's why they work well with people like you, Jimmy, because they come to you with a blank slate and a bit of trust. And then you're able to take that and build something really great with it, like a team, which is so important to all of our listeners. So yeah, I really appreciate your insights on that. I think it's been incredibly valuable. It was my pleasure. Thanks for joining us on the PropTech Growth Podcast. To learn more, you can find us on LinkedIn or email proptechpodcast at iCloud.com. See you next time.